0: There is a medical textbook from the Middle Ages, written in Old English, and titled Bald's Leech Book. And I know what you might be thinking. Yes, leeches were indeed once used in ancient medicine, but don't worry. The leech in leech book is believed to derive from an Old English word meaning something closer to prescription. It was a book of remedies. There was one for treating shingles that involved combining the barks of 15 different trees. Another for treating headaches by binding a stalk of crosswort to the head with a handkerchief. The kind of stuff you'd expect to find in an ancient book of what in those days passed as medicine. And the remedies weren't just for us humans. Bald's leech book even had one for a horse in pain. Though this remedy was a bit more like a spell. It involved inscribing a phrase on the handle of a dagger. And if that's not weird enough, try this one on for size. The author notes in the text that the cause of the horse's pain may have been an elf. These little creatures, the stuff of ancient folklore and superstition, were once very much a part of many people's belief systems and social realities. They lived invisibly among rural people. They had supernatural powers. Elves were real to many of our ancient ancestors. They were out there. They were worthy of serious mention in a medical book. They were thought to commonly afflict humans and livestock with things like sharp internal pains and forms of mental illness. They were even known to abduct people. Sometimes they worked their evil deeds with magical weapons, other times it was sorcery or alchemy. So how do we get from these early depictions and beliefs of mythical, scary, dangerous creatures to Christmas? What do elves even have to do with Christmas? Why do they live with Santa Claus? How and when did they transform into the jolly little worker bees we recognize today, with their striped leggings, curly pointed shoes, cute hats, and boundless Christmas spirit? It's a story that takes us from ancient Europe to the current day, one that involves mythology, modern American influence, the power of poetry and literature, possibly the rise of industrialization, and definitely sticking it to the Nazis. I'm Brian Earle. This is Christmas Past. Ancient folklore is full of creatures that resemble humans physically and share some human behaviors, whether it's trolls, leprechauns, gnomes, pixies, sylphs, fairies, or elves. Elves in particular continue to capture our imaginations today in one of their two primary modern forms. The mythic variety that populates stories like The Lord of the Rings or games like Dungeons and Dragons, and the cute Smurf-like variety of children's literature, Keebler Cookie and Rice Krispies mascots, and yes, Christmas. And surely modern Christmas is full of magical creatures like flying reindeer, talking snowmen, and of course Santa Claus himself, so sure, why not elves too? But still. Why elves?
1: It's a long and winding road uh, to get from European folklore uh, into Christmas elves.
0: That's Jerry Bowler. He's an historian and the author of several books about Christmas, including The World Encyclopedia of Christmas, Christmas in the Crosshairs, and Santa Claus, a Biography. And that long and winding road involves various cultures leaving their own mark on elf mythology. Some folktales portray them as purely dangerous or even evil, others depict them as being more about petty vengeance. Some depict them being helpful to humans, as long as humans followed very specific rules about keeping them happy. And out of those traditions, we take our first tentative step toward today's familiar Christmas elf, with a particular type of elf from Scandinavian myth known as a nisser. You'd recognize one immediately if you saw a picture. Short in stature, like two or three feet tall, pointy ears, often shown with a long white beard, and always with a distinctive elven hat.
1: They were originally conceived of as sort of guardians of the farm. But if they are slighted, or you do something against tradition, they will punish you.
0: Things start to come more into focus in the beginning of the 19th century. When many folk tales graduated from superstitious beliefs to forms of entertainment, and from strictly oral traditions to things collected and published for the masses,
1: we've got a fascination with that world that develops in the early 19th century as the Grimm brothers come out with their uh, sort of anthropological findings and their books of fairy tales. So we've got much more interest in that fairy world uh, than we had in previous centuries.
0: Now all we've done so far is establish broad contemporary interest in characters from ancient folklore. We still haven't connected any of it to Christmas, but that would happen soon. And the thing that would set it all in motion was the 1821 publication of a now largely forgotten poem.
1: A single poem called Children's Friend, um, which everybody should be much more aware of than they are. This is the first work of literature that takes the Western Christmas gift-bringer, which up to that time had largely been uh, St. Nicholas, and calls him, by the the Dutch transliteration, Santa Claus.
0: But it wasn't just the name change from St. Nicholas to Santa Claus that was so revolutionary. It was, in description and in the illustrations that accompany the poem, the fact that Santa Claus was depicted as entirely secular.
1: He's not a bishop. He doesn't wear a bishop's mitre or or carry the the bishop's crozier. He is dressed in fur and pulled by a reindeer-powered sleigh. The flying sleigh had already been
0: done. Washington Irving, writing as Diedrich Knickerbocker, described something similar in his satirical A History of New York, published in 1809. But it's important to call out that in Irving's version, A, it was a single horse who pulled the sleigh, and the sleigh was referred to as a wagon, for whatever that's worth, and B, that the sleigh was pulling St. Nicholas, not Santa Claus. Why was Santa Claus depicted the way he was in The Children's Friend? We'll never know. But what we do know is that this description, furs, reindeer, portrays someone who comes from a colder climate, a creature of the North.
1: And once he's a creature of the North, then your eyes shift to places like northern Germany and Scandinavia. And that's where the elves start coming in.
0: Now we're getting closer to Christmas elves. Santa is from the north, as opposed to St. Nicholas, who's from what's now Turkey. There's at least a geographical link between Santa and elf lore. And then shortly after the publication of The Children's Friend came another poem. This one much more widely known today, A Visit from St. Nicholas by Clement Clark Moore.
1: And that's our first mention of an elf directly as a gift-bringer.
0: Today, that poem gets a lot of credit for shaping the modern image of Santa, even though it was mostly picking up where the children's friend left off. But the point is, we now have two poets staking out ground in the 1820s, really contributing to this period of rapid shaping of the modern Santa Claus.
1: Not until the 1850s, over 30 years since the first appearance of Santa Claus, that we get elves. And there, in the 1850s, we've got two books that show him surrounded by helper elves. Uh, The first one is a book called Little Messenger Birds, uh, 1851, and then there's uh, The Wonders of Santa Claus, uh, which comes out in in Harper's Weekly in 1857. And the astonishing thing about helper elves is that these are the first gift-bringer helpers that are not scary. For hundreds of years, the gift-bringer, whether it's, it's the Christ child or uh, St. Nicholas or any variation thereof, has always had a scary helper.
0: Those scary helpers include characters like Krampus or Père Fouettard. These guys would be scary in appearance and also threaten to literally beat or abduct naughty children. And now here in America, we have these harmless-looking Santa's helpers, little worker bees or servants in Santa's workshop at the North Pole. And as a result, many of those evil European Santas helpers became less... evil. They may still look scary, but at least now they don't actually do scary things. Some folkloric traditions describe elves as being different kinds of craftsmen. Shoemakers, metalworkers, and the like. The idea of Christmas elves as toy makers in Santas factory-like workshop is pretty consistent, and also congruent with the time that they appeared, one of rising industrialization and factory-style production. Now again, the Christmas elf is based on the nisser, which became not only a symbol of Christmas, but at least for a time, also a symbol of resistance.
1: When Germany uh, invaded Norway in 1940 and occupied it uh, for five years, they made it illegal to display patriotic uh, symbols like the Norwegian flag. And so the nisser, these little elves and their red hats, became... The accepted symbol of Norwegian patriotism against the Nazis. It, it got so blatant that the Nazis made it against the law to wear their red hats, and uh, they confiscated uh, Christmas cards that had the nisser on them because that became the uh, sort of the unspoken symbol of the resistance.
0: Other elf legends are part of Christmas today. The Icelandic Yule Lads are becoming better known. Once very mischievous and devious characters, their image has softened over time. There's the 2003 Will Ferrell movie, which, 20 years on, is considered a Christmas classic. And of course, there's the inescapable Elf on the Shelf, which has become so pervasive in the American Christmas, for better or worse, that it just may be making a lasting contribution to Christmas elf mythology. Showing, if nothing else, that we continue to be interested in these little creatures and will continue evolving their legend. Our ancestors may once have really believed in elves, which might sound funny to us now, but we all have the experience of believing in a mythic being in the form of jolly old Saint Nicholas. And eventually, we have the experience of starting to lose our grip on that belief. That is, unless belief gets a little bit of help, like Diane in Arkansas recalls in this Christmas memory.
2: I remember a Christmas when I was about 11 years old. Um, I remember questioning my parents about whether Santa Claus was real or not. And I remember my mom telling me, if you don't believe, then he don't come, you know. And I was like, okay. And uh, she goes, well, why don't you write Santa Claus a note and see if he responds to your your note and I was okay that's a good idea so I remember writing a note and you know decorating it all pretty and making sure I left out the cookies and milk for him and uh, every other Christmas when I got up the first thing I would notice was the milk and cookies being gone before anything else and uh, this Christmas I woke up And I looked, and the cookies and milk were still there, and I thought, oh, you know, what's going on here? And uh, then I went to my note, and I looked, and oh my goodness, there was a boot print on my note. So Santa had come down the chimney, stepped in the soot, and then stepped on my note, but he forgot. He was in such a hurry, he forgot to eat the cookies and milk. So from that point on, I believed in Santa that much longer. You know, it was it was years longer before I I really realized what was going on, but uh, it was very magical, especially at that age to continue to believe like I did. My parents did it right, that's for sure. And uh, you know, of course, it was my dad that put his boot in the soot in the fireplace and and did that to my note, but uh, it was very magical, and I'll never forget it.
0: So, what about you? Do you have a favorite Christmas memory involving elves or Santa? I'd love to hear it, and so would the rest of the Christmas Past family. All you have to do is record yourself speaking into your phone's voice memo app, and then send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Keep it reasonably short, clean and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California, by yours truly, Brian Earle. Thank you so much to Jerry Bowler and Diane in Arkansas, and thank you for listening. You can drop me a line anytime, and I wish you would. I love hearing from you, and I love hearing what you're up to this Christmas season. Again, you can reach me at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and please do join our private Christmas Past Facebook group if you haven't yet to join our year-round family Christmas celebration. And hey, if you're really feeling the Christmas spirit, why not help more people discover the show? It's as easy as telling a friend about it or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do leave a review, I'll send you a Christmas past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card as my way of saying thanks. Reach out for details, and until we meet again, may your days be merry
2: and bright.